Would you open God's precious holy word to Numbers chapter 21? Closely associated really with Numbers 20. And what had happened there, the death of Miriam and Aaron and Moses' sin that cost him his ticket into the promised land. But we are in about the 40th year of their wandering, which means this is winding down for them. And they're not that far from the book of Joshua and entry into the Canaan. As a matter of fact, this side of the Jordan where they are is an area where, uh, what, Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh settled. They wanted to settle on that side So we're in that area now where they're going to wind up staying, but they will go and help Israel, Joshua, conquer the rest of the land. Uh, And it's interesting so that now we understand that there's still just a few of the older generation left, the generation under the judgment of God who were to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So by far the population of the people of Israel here at this point uh, is comprised of uh, that younger generation that's not under that judgment. And I think that's an interesting and important connotation to make as we study certain parts here with regard to how God is dealing with uh, his people. We start out then, and as I said, this is just going on. They're on their way to Moab, and we're just moving out of chapter 20 into chapter 21. And the next part is their victory at Hormah. So let's look at this together. The Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the south, heard that Israel had come by the route of the spies, and he waged war against Israel and took from them a captive. Apparently, he had received his information from Edom, And he went on the offensive and took a captive. He took people into captivity. Uh, In the language, it means that he took took from them a captive or a group of captives. Israel made a vow to Yahweh and said, if you deliver this people into my hand, I shall consecrate their cities. Now the word consecrate, that's an interesting word. It means I will utterly destroy their cities and give the spoil to you. That's basically what it means. Um, Also remember that the people now who are going to be the soldiers and going to war are that next generation. They are really in military training. This sort of begins their military training, this younger generation, because of what uh, is going to happen when they cross the Jordan following the leadership of uh, Joshua. At this point in time, they are not that far from crossing over and finally possessing the land of Canaan. Now, when, uh, when, we, when, we, when we talk about the destruction of the Canaanites uh, and how that uh, Israel goes in and displaces the Canaanites from uh, the land of Canaan, there are some people with misplaced sympathy who think that it seems unfair that the Israelites, um, who had just recently become a nation while in captivity in Egypt, 
recently relative to other nations, uh, wh why, why it should seem a good thing for them to go in and displace the Canaanites. We should always keep in mind that the invasion and uh, victory over the invasion of and the victory over the Canaanites in the land of Canaan, which took Joshua seven years uh, to complete. And he really didn't really complete the job. He just stopped a little short. But we should keep in mind that uh, as much as it was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the promised land, the land of promise, that God would finally give to them this land that had been promised to Abraham. As much as it was a fulfillment of his promise to the people to give them the land, it was a judgment against the Canaanite people who were desperately wicked people. Um, if you go back, for example, in Leviticus and look, and God warns Israel of the lifestyle and how the people lived. They were, they, they lived such a life that it was not just despicable and abominable, but it was unthinkable, apparently, in the minds of the Israelites who hadn't been um, exposed to the kind of things that they're going to see when they get to the land of Canaan. The, the Canaanites were utterly evil uh, in their lifestyle and the way that they did things. They were they were horribly pagan and idolatrous, uh, but they were also extremely perverted in their mindset, in their, in their behavior, uh, in their worldview. They were, they were at the other end of the spectrum of those who worshiped Yahweh. They were about as far away from Yahweh as you could imagine. So... In the history of the world, if one was to study, and it's an interesting study to make, you have to have a few history books, a history of the world that goes back as far as we can, and surround yourself with these books, and then keep your Bible and a chronological Bible here, and make, make uh, comparisons and so forth. There's a whole lot said in these history books that are that's not said in the Bible. The Bible is appealing to the spiritual development of the elect of God. And it would say something in a word or two that would take three chapters in an exhaustive history book uh, to describe with regard to the time frame and, and the geographical area that's being dealt with in the Bible. It's not God's purpose necessarily then to make it a book of history. Although there are histor there's historical data that can be studied and you can study a lot about what's going on in the world when they're here and you can do the same with, uh, with regard to uh, the trip to Canaan and as they get just to the edge of Canaan here and this guy, Arad, and uh, apparently a, a nomadic uh, kind of a guy that's like a terrorist who has a big army and he moves around and just lives off of people like a criminal. There's a lot of that. And 
it's not the purpose of God to dis- the purpose of God here is not to describe how nasty somebody like the king of Arad was, but how great Yahweh is. Because we, we begin with the assumption when we study these things that the world is an evil place. And that Gentile nations are especially evil. That they, they it, because of the depravity of man, anything outside of a theocracy, anything outside of the promise of the kingdom of God is going to naturally gravitate to more and more evil with regard to lifestyle and, and worldview and whatever. So, you know, we don't really need uh, three or four chapters of, of history about the time frame. Uh, all we need is the understanding that we are taught in Scripture that uh, the world is a desperately wicked place and that, uh, generally speaking, leaders outside of the sons of David are evil and wicked people. And even a couple of times, the sons of David could fall into wickedness. But that's because Judah was a theocracy with, uh, with the Davidic covenant and then the priesthood, uh, the temple and prophets. And that was their checks and balances. You know, ours is what? The legislative and the judicial and the executive branches of, uh, of government were supposed to, be, <laughs> supposed to be checks and balances. But in the Old Testament economy of the people, of God's Old Testament people, it was the prophets and the kings and the priests. Uh, so they, they, could, they could keep one another in check. That's why... There was such condemnation of evil prophets, for example, and a special condemnation of priests who adopted a worldview separate from the worldview that was given to them in the Torah, the law, and of course the kings who either did good or evil in the sight of the Lord. So when we look at something like the Canaanite king of Arad, a couple of things sticks out to me. Number one, he's a Canaanite. That tells me he is desperately wicked. Number two, he's a Gentile king, which also tells me that he's desperately wicked. And he believes in a God uh, of, of his regional God. And the worship of that God is heinous. It is, it is, it is everything that is opposed to the holiness of worship of Yahweh, the true and living God. So we don't need, we just need to understand that Israel is the elect of God in the Old Testament. They have a land of promise, a promised land, a land promised to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have a land promised to them, and then they have a king, a kingly line promised to them. They have a, a worship, a system of worship that has been designed in heaven uh, and, and then they have these laws and regulations that are to keep them to maintain their separation from the world. That's all I need to know. All I need to know is that the God of heaven is leading and guiding the nation of Israel. And any other king is, has the propensity to be their enemy, the enemy of Israel, and will become the enemy of Israel if Yahweh does not raise up leadership and an army and a king or a leader like Moses 
and, and is with them in battle when they do battle. There will be battle. There is always battle. There is enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of woman. And it, it's going to go on until Christ himself puts it down. So when I read this, I don't have to read all of the historical things. Uh, I read while studying for this, this particular land area that's mentioned here and a couple of the geographical places in Numbers chapter 21. And when you get into some of these, uh, I, I, you know, some of these commentary guys are just eggheads. They just, they just live with a question mark on their faces. And so <laughs> rather than extolling the glory of Yahweh in being with his people that they could stand against Canaan, they, they have to say, well, it's, there's, it's not real clear who this guy was or what this land was or exactly where he's, but who cares? Where, all I know is that it was their boundaries at one time and it's going to become the boundaries of God's people according to the will of God. That's the only thing that matters. Uh, so the Canaanite king attacked them, took a portion of them as captive. Israel made a vow. If you deliver us. Now, I want you to notice here that it's the people here. What you're going to notice in Numbers 21 is, even though there's a glitch in their spiritual life, and we'll get to it in a couple of minutes, yet still, it is still more, more their attitude to turn to Yahweh as a people. Previously in that other generation, Moses was always having to exhort them and admonish them. And Moses was having to uh, deal with them and fall on his face in intercession for them. But now with this new generation taking over, you can see, you can sense that they are more spiritual than the generation before them, even though they will make their own mistakes here. So Yahweh heard Israel's voice. Now that's a little different than what it's been, right? And delivered the Canaanite, this king of Arad. He destroyed them and consecrated their cities. And he called the place Hormah. Hormah, that means destruction. They called it the place of destruction. So by the name of the place and what's said here... Israel defeated, utterly defeated this Canaanite king and his region and then went in and took their cities, utterly destroyed their cities and took the spoil and gave the spoil to Yahweh. So he goes back to the tabernacle. Now, this, this is the beginning, although they're not across the river yet, this is the beginning of the destruction of Canaan. These people on that side of the river are Canaanites. They are from Canaan. They crossed over and formed their own nation or whatever and city-states. And they're, they're absolutely Canaanites. They're descendants of Ham. Ham, the son of Noah. Canaan, Ham's son, is under a particular curse that was made in the book of Genesis. So Canaan 
the Canaanite is, is going, he has just begun to fall under the sword of Israel. And part of it is because this is a new generation. As I said earlier, they're, they're in direct military training. They are now going to have to assume the leadership of being the soldiers, of, of being the army, of being the guys who are going to fight the war. Most of the older generation is dead. We'll talk about that more as we go. Now, here's the account of the bronze or the brass serpent. And we have a New Testament teaching from Jesus himself that speaks to this passage of Scripture. They journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to circle the land of Edom. The people became disheartened because of the way. Now, this is, for the most part, this younger, newer generation. And the people spoke against Elohim and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this desert? For there is no bread and no water. And we are disgusted with this rotten bread. That's the manna. Think of yourself as a kid. Riding on the shoulders of your happy daddy. Leaving the slavery of Egypt. And the Egyptians are paying you off in all kinds of goldness just to get out. Go on, leave us, please. And you're in a big group of people who are happy and rejoicing and blessing and praising God. And here you go. And it's a wonderful thing. But the only thing that you've had to eat for 40 years is a, a Jack's hamburger. That miraculously, or whoever, McDonald's, this is nothing against anybody. Flip it burger, whatever you want to call it. But this is the only thing that you've had. It has all of the nutrients that you need. And every time that the water began to run dry, the water would miraculously come. But that was just too nerve wracking. So, you know, I am tired of this hamburger. Now, if you ever hear me say that, you you need to check me into the nearest mental hospital because I could live on hamburgers. I'm tired of this rotten stuff. So, so many of them were born not knowing the great miracle that occurred when God began to provide manna for them. And so they think that they can, they think they can once again complain in their disheartened state. And here's what happens. Yahweh is sent against the people venomous snakes. Now that, uh, that, that Hebrew word, uh, there it is, haserifim, haserifim, the burning or the burning ones, seraphim, you've heard of that, a group of angels that praise God all the time. Haserifim, I, I, I translated venomous, but it probably is better. Fiery venomous. The venom created fire in the person's body. High fever. Discomfort. And if it was real high fever, then people begin to kind of get out of their minds a little bit. 
So God sends these venomous, and there's another word here, or in another part of the scriptures, he calls them flying snakes. They were just very, very aggressive. They did not like Israelites. And so with this special venom, they would come from everywhere and they would fly into the faces of Israelites and just bite them, probably bite them a lot. Now look at this. And they bit the people and many people of Israel died. Now that's probably most of the rest of that older generation. Whenever, whenever community illness strikes, especially that deals with fever and such, the, usually the older ones are the weaker ones and they're the ones who die. But I'm just assuming that's the gospel according to Charles. It's a book that I wrote that for some reason was not included in the canon of scripture. And I called it First Assumptions. It seems to me that here, this would have been the death of most of the rest of the older generation. Everything is working according to the judgment and purpose of God. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. You know, you, you speak against God. Moses didn't have to, he didn't have to, say, he didn't have to come and say, let me tell you what you always say. He didn't have to do that. They spouted off against God and Moses, which the people had done previously, but it was another generation mostly. And they came under judgment. And here, this time, the people immediately recognized their need for confession and repentance. That hadn't happened like that before. So there's hope for this generation. They came to Moses and said, we've sinned. We've spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he remove the snakes from us. So Moses prayed on behalf of the people. Yahweh said to Moses, make yourself a serpent and put it on a pole. And let whoever is bitten look at it and live. Moses made a copper snake, a brass snake, and put it on a pole and whenever a snake bit a man, he would gaze upon the copper snake and live. Look and live. Christ compared himself to this brazen serpent, this brass serpent. All of the people were affected by the curse of this serpent. This serpent had brought a curse by his actions and deeds, had brought a curse upon the people. And now, what do they do? Moses, instructed by Yahweh, makes a brass serpent in the likeness of the serpents that are attacking them. And lifts it up high on a standard so that the people everywhere could see it. Now, the serpent, the brass serpent, by the divine decree of Yahweh, has been declared to be the remedy for the curse that had befallen the people. It was a simple message. Look 
and live. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to make their way to that pole and touch it. They didn't have to do anything but look and live. He had to acknowledge that you were infected by the curse that the serpent had brought. But more than that, what the serpent had brought was death. And the embodiment of death is seen in that serpent on, up on the pole. And therefore, what had brought about the death of that serpent is the very thing that will deliver the people from their problem. Look and live. This is by the declaration of Yahweh. Christ would say in the New Testament, just like those people looked at that snake on the pole, look to me. Look to me. Just like they looked there, look to me. Because you see, it took the life of Christ raised up and the curse of sin upon Christ, whose while in the act of crushing the head of the serpent was bruised in his heel, namely, he died this horrific and ignominious death on the cross and all that led up to it. But because it was absorbed upon him, he took it away and we look to see that which is taken away, the curse of sin. And we live. So Christ, Christ by illustration and analogy compared what he does lifting it, lifted up on the cross as to what this brazen serpent had done lifted up by Moses on the pole. The lesson is the curse itself has been cursed. And judged. And that judgment now is complete, and you look to live. Christ hanging on the cross was separated from the Father. The Son was separated from the Father by design, by eternal design. Father, why have you forsaken me? Three hours, the darkness came. And earthquake and all this stuff that happens. And it is by the divine purpose of God that Christ takes upon himself all the sins of his own until he cries, it's accomplished, it's done, it's finished, it's over. And uh, the sun shines. Things get back to normal. But the lifeless Christ on the cross has shed his blood. And the death of Christ tells us that he has, he has taken our unrighteousness upon himself. And the righteousness that was his now because he took our unrighteousness as an atonement, as a vicarious offering for us, we can now look to the crucified Christ and we can be saved knowing that we have been delivered because of what Christ has done for us. So this is the analogy that's made all the way back into the, into the book of Numbers. And it has this, this uh, 
this, this nice gospel message to it. Look and live. Now they move on from there into their journey, still headed toward Moab. The sons of Israel journeyed on, camped at Abot. They journeyed from Abot and camped in the wasteland passes in the wilderness, which faced Moab. Now they're headed to Moab. Remember, there's a neat story about a guy whose donkey speaks to him. That'll be next time. That'll be a lot of fun. And toward the rising sun. And from there they journeyed and they encamped along the stream of Zered. From there they journeyed. It's just given to you have a Bible map. You can just trace where they've gone. From there they journeyed and encamped on the other side of the Arnon, which was in the desert extending from the Amorite border. For Arnon was the Moabite border between Moab and the Amorites. Now the Amorites were not as uh, extensive of a nation as they once had been, but always were desperately wicked people, a desperately wicked enemy of, uh, of Israel. Concerning this, it is told in the account of the wars of Yahweh, what he gave at the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea and the streams of Arnon and the spilling of the streams that turned to settle at Ar and leaned toward the border of Moab. Now that's an interesting, that's an interesting passage because this is a lost uh, book. This is a lost account that we don't have. They had access, access to it then. It was an account of how they f engaged in war, fought the war. It would, have been a, uh, it would have been a manual of war that perhaps would have helped Joshua and maybe even later campaigns. But that, whatever that book of wars was has been lost to us because it was never intended, obviously, to be a part of Scripture. So they leaned toward the border of Moab. And from there to the well that is the well which Yahweh said to Moses, gather the people and I'll give them water. And Israel saying that, and they see, they didn't, this is just grace. He just gives them water. Gather the people, I'll give them water. Israel sang this song, ascend, O well, and sing to it. The, uh, the psalm, the song of the water and the well that the people sung. A well dug by princes, carved out by nobles of the people through the lawgiver with their staffs and from the desert a gift. From the gift to the streams and from the streams to the heights, from the heights to the valley in the field of Moab at the top of the peak that overlooks the wastelands. God powerfully provided for them water. And that water was there for them. Now it moves on finally into the defeat of Sihon and Og, a couple of kings and uh, their armies that Israel will face. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. We'll not turn into the fields or vineyards nor drink well water. We shall walk along the king's road until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon did not permit Israel to pass through this through his territory, Sihon gathered all of his people and went out to the desert toward Israel. He arrived at Jahaz and fought against Israel. Now he was thinking that he could be as good as the Edomites were. It was not the purpose at that time for the Israelites, God's purpose, for the Israelites 
to fight against the Edomites. Had God told them to, the Edomites would have been defeated, but God did not allow it. That's why they had to pass around it, but it's not so with this guy. All right, so, so they fight uh, the Amorites at Jahaz, where Israel and uh, the Am, uh, Amorites fought. Israel smote him with the sword and took possession of his land from Ammon to Jabalch, as far as the sons of Ammon, for the border of the sons of Ammon was strong. Israel took all these cities and the, uh, uh, and the Israelites dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all of its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sahan, the king of the Amorites, and he had fought against the first king of Moab, taking all of his land from his possession as far as I'm on. Uh, here's what's happening. Closing in on the land of Canaan, some people are beginning to settle in the land, that side of the river that, uh, that Israel has conquered. Obviously, this is not something that is offensive. Joshua later will say, okay, you can have this land if it's what you want, but you, you're not out of your obligation to come and help us in the war until we have defeated Canaan, all of it. Concerning this, those who speak in parables say, come to Heshbon. May it be built and established as the city of Sihon. For fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the masters of the high places of Ammon. This is, this is some kind of uh, chant uh, that the people, those people sung in their day. Woe is you. Woe is to you, Moab. You're lost. People of Chamosh, his sons, he has given over his refugees, his daughters into captivity to Son, king of the Amorites, and their kingdom is destroyed from Heshbon. It has been removed from Debon. We laid them waste as far as Dopha, which is near Medeba. Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. So now they've taken that land. Moses sent men to spy out Jazer. They captured its villages, driving out the Amorites who lived there. Then they turned and headed north toward Baashan. Og, the king of Baashan, came out toward them and with all of his people to wage war at Edrei. Yahweh said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have delivered him, his people, his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sahan, the king of the Amorites, who dwells in Heshbon. They smote him, his sons, and all of his people until there was no survivor, and they took possession of his land. Though they are not across the river and into the beyond the boundaries that God had promised regarding the land, the promised land, promised to Abraham, they're, they're just on the other side of that. But God says, okay, you can have it. Uh, you, can, you can begin. So they begin to feel the strength and joy of victory. And they begin to sense the power of Yahweh. As he delivers army after army into their hand, giving them this taste of victory on that side of the river, teaching them how to do war along the way and making them into a greater and greater army so that they're simply unstoppable when they cross the Jordan River. 
Well, we'll stop there and we'll be dismissed with prayer. Father God in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word and for the account of how you always deliver your people and how you are with us. You can soften our hearts and draw us to yourself in so many ways. Lord, we love your word and we thank you for what it teaches us about our own trek through this life. Help us, O oh God, to place these words in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.